I appreciate the opportunity to come and speak, Brother Marshall and Brother David. I appreciate the invitation to be here with you. I always enjoy coming and getting the opportunity to speak on these lectureships and haven't got to come to as many this year, living back across the bay. And last night I thought I might get to come and hear Brother W.T. Allison. And first of all, I realized it was Valentine's Day and I like being married to the same woman. And uh, second of all, my kids ended up with a ceremony. They've started taking Taekwondo. And they were getting a new belt, and it was very important to receive their first belt. So I ended up having to do some things with the children last night, but I enjoyed the opportunity to be here with you this morning. The topic that they assigned, as you could see on the screen, if it were showing on the screen, is when the end is near or living in the shadows of eternity. That is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 19. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles and turn to that, we'll be... Looking at these passages as we go, there's going to be several points, and I don't have just a whole lot of time this morning. What? What's the? Oh, did it go away? Okay, you just give me the thumbs up when you get there. I'm going to get going. Peter was what we would call eternity conscious. When you think about his writings and the things that he said throughout time, he spoke often of the end. When we look at verse 7 of our passage, we'll notice in just a moment that it is spoken of there. But before we get to the passage that's assigned, we think about other scriptures and wherein he talked about the end. When we go to chapter 4 and verse 17, he said, What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And when we go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, he's speaking of those who knew the truth. They had come out of the world, they had gotten into the truth, now they had gone back into the world. And he speaks about their latter state or the end being worse for them than the beginning. When we look at the opening verse of our passage, we notice the phrase, the end. What end is he alluding to? Well, before we get into our in-depth nine-point look, I told you there's a lot to cover in this passage. Nine-point look, but before we get to that, what end is he alluding? Is it the end of time? Is it the end where all will be judged and eternity has begun? Or is it the end of Jerusalem? Is it the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of Judaism as a threat to Christianity? Well, the time period in which this was written being the mid-60s, somewhere in the first century, uh, roughly, being over 19 centuries removed from that, I would like to suggest to you it would be the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of Judaism as that threat to Christianity. But with all that being said, there will be an end. There will be an end to all things. That is not my slideshow, nor do I know that picture. But there will be an end to all things. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24. He says, then cometh the end. When he shall deliver the kingdom unto his father. We are all living in the shadow of eternity. First Samuel chapter 20 and verse 3. There is but a step between me and death. Folks, we're only a heartbeat away from being in eternity. We go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and the wise man there in verse seven, 5 through 7. Boy, in that passage, when you read all that and you, and you see the things that used to work that aren't going to work anymore. 
The way we used to be able to function that we can't function anymore. The way the, the hair that we used to have that's not going to be there anymore. I didn't know it would happen this early in life for me. But it does. But the wise man says that this is a time when man will go to his eternal home. James, when we look in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, he again reminds us of the brevity of life. When he says our life is but a vapor, we're only here for a little while, and then he says it vanisheth away. Proverbs 27 and verse 1, he starts off and he says, don't, don't, don't boast about tomorrow. Well, why not? Don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day may actually hold. You don't know that there's going to be a tomorrow for you. We are truly living in the shadow of eternity right now. With all that being said, and with those points being made, we've got to consider what our view should be with that in mind. What is our view of living in the shadow of eternity? And as the topic that was assigned, the end is drawing near. Look at our passage in verse 7. The first point that we'll notice is, That with the end in view, we should be sober-minded. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. This means to be in our right mind. To exercise self-control. To be able to curb our passions. We go to a story that's all too familiar to all of us in Luke chapter 15. That of the prodigal. I would say that he would not be one who would be described as in his right mind when we get into the middle of this story. We see in the beginning, Father, give me what's mine. I want to go. I don't like being here any longer. And the Father, of course, gives to him what would be his portion of the inheritance. It says he goes off into the far country and he wasted in riotous living. But then comes the famine. He's out of money. It says he began to be in want. And as he is, those of us who grew up in the country... Uh, I didn't have hogs, but I've heard it called hog slopping. As he's standing in the middle of the pen and feeding the hogs, it says, oh, he was so hungry, but he would have eaten what they, what he was given to them. It says he came to himself. He had to be somewhere in his mind to have to come back to himself. He was not being sober-minded throughout this passage. He was not thinking in a correct way. He was not living in a correct way, but now he is turning that mindset around. And that's what the Lord wants from us. That's what Peter is challenging us to do. Think correctly. Be sober-minded. Titus chapter 2, he reminds us in verses 11 and 12 that we should live soberly. There should be a seriousness about our conduct. Brother Marshall talking about uh, humor. uh, As much as anybody, I love to laugh. I love to laugh. Every time I look in the mirror, I laugh. Every time my wife looks at me, she laughs. I love to laugh and have a good time. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the price my Savior paid upon that cross, when it comes to what my Lord has done for me, when it comes to the seriousness of sin and the love that God God showed and the price that Christ paid so that I can live with him eternally, folks, that's serious business. And that's something we can't be flippant or careless about in our attitude. So the first thing we notice is be sober-minded. The second part of that verse there, in verse 7, will be our second point. Watch unto prayer. And I believe it is working now. 
Watch unto prayer in verse 7. Prayer is something that is needful. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. Pray without ceasing. We go to Matthew 21 verse 22. He says, whatsoever things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. That beautiful passage starts with the phrase, ask, and it shall be given unto you. We need to be praying, but not just praying. We need to be watching for an answer. How many times have people prayed, or maybe we have prayed as individuals, and we've not actually prepared to receive what we've asked God for? We've not actually prepared our lives for the answer that God is going to give. We pray, and then we walk away from that prayer as though we really haven't done anything, and there's not going to be a change that will be affected in our lives in any way. Watch and pray for those answers. Matthew 26 and verse 41. Watch and pray. We don't know when the Lord will return. We must be ready, be watching, and be be looking out for that. James chapter 4 and verse 2. He says, you lust not, or you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not. Why? Because ye ask not. This is basically a vicious cycle of needless poverty. You don't have to do without, but you're doing without because you don't ask. You don't come to me and ask for the things that you need and desire. Many failures that we have in life are prayer failures. I was speaking to the congregation Sunday night at Somerdale, and they were my guinea pigs for this. But I brought out the fact that many times... We wonder why things don't go our way in a congregation. We're going to have a gospel meeting. The date will be June 5th through the 12th. Well, you pick a date. And then that day comes and the preacher comes in, but we've done nothing to prepare for that day, for that time. Least amount, we haven't even prayed. And we wonder, why did it fail? Oh, we're going to have a special day, a special activity. We're going to be involved in this or that. And the day comes and we do it and we wonder, why didn't we receive the results? Why didn't we achieve the results which we so desired? Maybe our failure was just this, a prayer failure. We failed to pray. We failed to take our wants and desires and needs to God, believing that he would help us to fulfill and succeed those goals. The next thing you'll see is found in verse 8. Have a love that is fervent and forgiving. You can also notice in verse 8, chapter 1 and verse 22 of 1 Peter, telling us we are to love one another with a pure and a fervent heart. I'm not going to have time according to the clock to read. I've got, what, 25 minutes? I'm supposed to quit at 9.30? 9.30. All right. I've got another 45 minutes, and that will be the end of my 30 minutes. Fervent, constant, and earnest. When we think about this, when we think about love, that is our number one priority. There's nothing above that according to Scripture. In fact, you see in this passage in verse 8, it says, above all things. When you go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14, he again reiterates the same phrase, above all things. Matthew. Chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. We see what is the first and greatest command. Love the Lord your God. Oh, but here's number two. 
love your neighbor. Love God. Love others. The first two greatest commands have to do with love. When we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we notice in verses 4 through 8, it's a beautiful passage on love. But the first thing it says is, love suffers long and is kind. There's so many things in this world that can be avoided if people truly understood what love is. If they understood what Christian love is and the way that God wants us to love one another. There'd be a lot of brotherhood fights that would never happen, Brother Marshall. If we loved one another the way God would have us to. There's power in love. When you look in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, there's power in love to forgive. It said, love covereth all sins. Oh, covereth all sins. That, is that an ignorance of these sins? Is that just to ignore them, to forget about them? No, I believe James will tell us what that is in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, when he says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that him which converteth the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So this hiding, this covering of those sins is not done by ignoring them. It's done in the proper way by forgiveness. And once that is done, we're able to hide and cover. The next thing we'll notice this morning from our passage is be hospitable. Verse 9, we look at it, use hospitality. One to another without grudging. I believe these go together. Don't you love and hospitality? Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. You go down to the end of that passage. It says for some have entertained angels unaware. There is a need most definitely to show our love by practicing hospitality. When I was thinking about this point and thinking about the uh, things that, that may go with this, it, it brought to mind the hospitality that we used to share so much back in what I'm going to call the good old days. You may say, you weren't alive in the good old days. Well, to me, they were good. But I do remember the time when my father was preaching and we would drive all over the country, Brother Marshall, and we'd stop. And uh, I didn't know there was such things as Holiday Inn because we stayed with other people. I didn't know all these restaurants existed because we ate in other people's homes. I have people now who I come up to and I say, I remember when you and your daddy and your mama, y'all stayed in my home. And I said, we did. They said, oh, yeah, you were just a little fellow, but y'all stayed with us. For the, I remember so many preachers coming into our homes and staying with us. And now, let's have a get-together. Let's do it. At, anybody want to host it? Oh, don't come to my house. Don't come to my house. Let's not do this whole hospitality thing. Can we not just meet at the church building or at Ryan's? We can get the back room at Ryan's and I don't have to clean. We need to be hospitable and it says don't do it grudgingly. Folks, when we love one another, where else would we want to be? Where were the first century Christians? In one another's homes on a daily basis. They were partaking of physical food, but also more importantly partaking of the spiritual nourishment hospitality-wise, day-to-day in one another's home. The next point we'll look at is found in verses 10 and 11. Serve so as to glorify God. We've got to be a good steward of whatever gifts God has blessed us with. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. It's in required in a man that he be found faithful. 
We should speak. Look at verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak how? As of the oracles of God. Only that which God has revealed. Titus chapter 2, we look at verses 7 and 8. We are to use sound speech in the things that we say. We are to use sound speech. It says that cannot be condemned. Say the things that are in accordance with God's will. Say things that will bring glory to God. Everything we do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 is done to bring praise, glory, and honor to God. We must be careful in our choice of words and in our choice of actions. So with that view of eternity in mind, with the fact that we are truly in the shadows of eternity and the end is near, we should serve, we should live, we should speak so as to Glorify God. Jesus, in that wonderful passage of Matthew 5, we look and they see his teaching there and he says, What are you supposed to be? I want you to be lights. I want you to be salt. I want you to be seen. I want you to stand out in a dark world. Why do I want people to see your good works? So that they can glorify your Father who is in heaven. The next point we see this morning is found in verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. It's not unusual. The first thing he points out, think it not strange. Don't think this is something that's just special for you. Others were experiencing the same thing. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 9, we're going to see it, but go back one verse to verse 8. You see the caution. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walketh about as roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now in verse 9, you see all that's happening. Here's your warning. Here's your adversary. Here's the devil. Now in verse 9, don't think you're something special because it's happening to your brethren. When you go to verse 9, he says that, Whom resists steadfast in the, in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are occurring or are accomplished in your brethren. Jesus warned us that those hard times are going to appear. They're going to try us. John 15 and again in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And folks, I... I'm sad to say I think this is an area in which we have sorely failed our children. I think that we've failed to teach them to expect persecution. We teach them to fit in and not stand out. We teach them to sit down and be quiet instead of speaking up as the apostles did as they stood and they were said, quit this preaching, quit speaking about Christ. It can cost you your life. We're going to put you in prison. You will be punished. And they said, we can't but speak those things which God would have us to speak. They went on their way rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And we tell our children, don't. Don't do what you don't have to do. We must teach them to expect persecution. These trials are going to serve to strengthen our faith. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 tells us that these trials of our faith going to be more precious than gold. First Peter 5 and verse 10, the God of all grace. After that, you have suffered a little while. It says, we'll make you perfect and strengthen you. The next point we'll look at is in verses 13 and 14. Examine your life. I'm sorry, rejoice in trials. I was on point number eight already. I looked at the time and I said, I got to speed up. Rejoice in trials. Matthew chapter 5 also gives us an insight into that in verses 11 and 12. We see all the blessed, the blessed, the blessed. Listen to this one. Blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for what? Great 
is your reward in heaven. Boy, not only do we not want our children to have to suffer, not only do we not want to have to suffer, how in the world can you rejoice? Well, we can rejoice if things are happening for the right reason. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Because our reward, he says, is great in heaven. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy if ye fall into divers temptation. Did I quote that correct, Brother Marshall? I think I misquoted that. Count it all joy, not if, but when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Folks, we're going to be better on the other side. We're going to be better when we come through these trials, when we come through these temptations, when we've done them the correct way with Christ. We can rejoice in our trials. I've got just a short amount of time and two points left. We'll look at the next last one. They're found in verses 15 through 18. Examine your life. Here's what we were talking about. You can rejoice in trials. These things are going to happen to you. But when we look at our life and we look at the suffering that we're enduring, why? Why are we suffering? Are we suffering because we're a murderer? Are we suffering because, as the passage points out, we're a thief? We're an evildoer? We're a busybody. Why is it that we're suffering? Why is it that we're paying these prices? Listen, yet if any man, in verse 16, he says, suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. If we're suffering, the question must be asked, why? If it's something because of our own doing and something because of our own bad choices, don't glory in that. You did that to yourself. But if you're suffering, he says, because you're standing up and you're living for me. Oh, you're going to get a reward. And it will be great. And you can glorify in that. The last thing we'll notice this morning is our time is running short. In verse 19, commit yourselves to God. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls. To him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Why is this important? While we are truly living in the shadow of eternity, and the end is drawing near, when I'm able to look and see the finish line of my life, and on the other side is eternity, why am I worried about a commitment? There have been many people in my life who've done many wonderful things. There have been many people who've helped me every step of the way. There's been many people who've helped me all throughout. And there's been many wonderful, marvelous things done. But there's nobody outside of God who is my faithful creator. I've been committed to many things. And and folks, it's an election season. How many people are committed to their candidate? How many people are committed to their political parties? How many people already have signs out in the yard showing their loyalty for whoever it may be? We must be people who aren't committed just to political candidates, but more importantly, with the end in view and eternity on the other side of the next shadow, we're committed to God. He is our faithful creator. And He is the one that at the end of our time upon this earth, has the power and will do things 
the right way. And he will do what is right in the end. Are we ready to meet him? Because, folks, as we started the lesson with, eternity's but a heartbeat away. And if I don't get another one, am I ready to stand before him and say, Lord, I was committed to you, and now I'm coming home? Thank you for your time.